The rain is coming down in Hamra, Beirut, on a Wednesday, and Jay George and I are headed out to drink. We are going to drink Gimlets, we are going to drink Manhattans, and we are going to drink Negronis. Because you drink in Lebanon for the same reasons you drink in Lima, Ohio. You can cope in those cups, you get that conviviality, that extra 5% burden melting off your shoulders. Okay, it's maybe a bit of a maintenance high, but here in Beirut, there's an urgency to the drinking. Jade tells me that during the revolution in the fall of 2019, everybody's been smoking and drinking more. And you know, they can, despite the call to prayer ringing from every mosque, despite Hamra being the old Muslim quarter, this is a live and let drink city with a deep bar culture and a history of interfaith intoxication. Fast forward all these months later through COVID and the devastating port blast, and there's more fatigue and fatalism than ever in Beirut. But the revolution is still very much needed, and also every once in a while, so is a stiff drink. So drink like a revolutionary. Drink like you're spilling out of the Stonewall Inn, ready to fight back for good. Drink like our American founding fathers, who were both revolutionaries and drinkers and distillers as well. I will have updates on Jade and her work during COVID after this interview, but for now, as Jade and I march out to Bar Ferdinand and then back to the studio to talk about food and life and publishing in Beirut, just remember that you can't spell barricade without bar. And this is a drinking podcast that is still and forever 1,000% behind the Lebanese revolution and everything it stood for. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you're listening to The Trip, drinking with exceptional people around the world. Okay, we are on a street called Mansour Jurdak Street. Uh, right behind us is the old um, Beirut lighthouse. The black and white lighthouse? Yeah, uh, uh, which is no longer functional, Okay. but it's pretty. Should we cross the street to avoid the garbage bin? Uh, sure. <laughs> I'm still learning the the pedestrian ways in Beirut, but it seems like courage is a, a, an important ingredient. It's a plus, yeah. <laughs> and where are we walking to now? We're walking to Ferdinand. Uh, so this place used to be owned by a different guy than the one that owns it right now. I used to go here uh, when I was in college, uh, but then 
Riyad Abul Taif bought it from Mark Muradeh, um, and shockingly left the same name uh, and the kind of the same decor as well. Although they tell you that's lethal when it comes to a, a new like new management in a bar. Yeah. The first thing you do is you change the name and you change the decor and everything else. But not much. if that was one of Jade's hangouts in college. The uh, nostalgia value is then very high, right? No. <laughs> I don't think that's the reason, but uh, <laughs> like, it's right here. We cannot change this. It's a, it's a monument, a heritage place. When Riyadh came, he, he, he's an architect by profession, okay. and he came and was dabbling with the whole uh, cooking thing. Hey, you! Hey, Nathan, nice to meet you. Hi, Keith. I feel like places in Beirut because Beirut changes so often. Yeah. Um, the fact that there are, there are places that are staples to the city. Right. Uh, it's part of why I also like to support. I, lo I, I know what they do uh, behind the bar, in the kitchen, so I really trust yeah. uh, their general, general philosophy. So you tell me the spirit, as okay. in tequila, mezcal, rum, gin, yeah. you know, and the taste, sweet, sour, bitter, and dry, and we can start your journey. And then we'll just start a journey. I like start that description. Yeah. That is a, a long descent into madness. Remember that uh, cocktail you did for me with the Afendi and the Zaatar? I don't want vodka as it is. Gin. Gin. A we'll, gin? Do, we'll, we'll play around the, the classic Gimlet. Uh, okay. A Ferdinand Gimlet. A Lebanese Gimlet. What we call it, it's a breakfast Gimlet. So you... You should go straight, and now you're into cocktails. No, uh, I still like my drinks straight. Um, it's just that when I feel like when I'm at a cocktail bar, it's yep. pointless to order anything but a cocktail, especially if it's a good one. Like, do you feel like somehow the moralists and the you know the abolitionists will come for this life? push it underground, make it less tenable. I mean, uh, I hope I'm not wrong, but I would say hell no. Like, not the slightest concern. I mean, Lebanon's gone through so much. And like I said, the bars tend to thrive under such uh, conditions. And I feel like it's so, part, so much part of our culture um, to go out and to drink and to invite people over to drink at home. It's really a big part of our of our culture. I mean, at yeah. least for the like the drinking part of the population. I always said Beirut will put itself on the map for its drinking before its eating. Although we have a huge food culture, um, but I think that the the drinking culture is is that attractive. I think for for people for people visiting the city. An inviolable pillar of society, the drinking. Yeah, but I mean, think about it. A, 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 a nation that's always, you know, feels like it's always in a hamster wheel. The second it gets its like head out, like out the surface of the water, it feels like it's drowning again. I mean, no. I think that it's is like when a, I start drinking. That is true. Yeah, it's a coping feeling. mechanism. I right. Think. Um, and we are a very social nation. We love gathering. It doesn't matter what day. I mean, what day of the week is it? Wednesday? I don't even know. Yeah, Wednesday. I mean, look around. Yeah. It's Wednesday. People are here. It's Wednesday at 7.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? The afternoon is barely getting started. <laughs>
So tell me where we are now. Uh, so we're in my house. It is in Ras Beirut, which is what is in, in an area called Hamro in Beirut. Um, I recently moved in uh, after... I kind of got a bit too romantic after releasing the Carton's uh, 16th edition, which is titled Extinction. And uh, uh, it was a three-volume set. And one of the volumes was um, covered all these beautiful houses and mansions uh, around the country, uh, mostly in two of the biggest cities in the country, so Beirut and Tripoli. Uh, and we talked to these different families that own these houses. They, they used to be really wealthy, but then kind of inherited a house and couldn't afford to maintain it. And at the same time, um, so Calais, which is where the carton shop um, f- opened its first location, was looking for a second location for the coffee roastery. Um, they, and they happened to find the ground floor of this house uh, as a location. And the second floor was uh, vacant. And I think we got a little overexcited and decided to uh, restore the house and move into it. Uh, it was unrealistic to just move in and pay that kind of a rent and that kind of a fee on restoration. So we decided to you know, think of how we can afford to stay in it and still take it up. Um, and that's how the idea of just hosting friends and friends of friends came about. It does feel to me like your romance sensors might be like switched up somehow <laughs> when you say well we got a little too romantic after we published our three-part issue about extinction <laughs> but yeah. but i guess that's the romance part is like these are buildings these are apartments these are kind of ways of living that are going out of uh not just out of style but out of existence and yeah. you thought god damn it like we're gonna be you know the wall against the flood yeah, but what is romance? I mean, romance, by definition, comes from like an organ that's not your brain. Um, a friend recently asked me, are you romantic about Lebanon? And I said, what do you mean, am I romantic about Lebanon? He's like, so do you feel things about the country that your brain can't exactly explain why you particularly tolerate them uh, and you still go on and on in doing so? And I said, hell yeah, I'm romantic about Lebanon. What are you talking about? I am horny for Lebanon. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like you do these things that you would not do otherwise. I think that's like it in a nutshell. Right. It's a rationality. Yeah, in a way. It's causing you to create some sort of reality in your mind where you should definitely take over uh, an entire second floor and, you know, with these kind of high ottoman ceilings and a desire to create this unusual living space above a coffee shop that's going to hold a retail store for your magazine god what did i do yeah (laughs) just hear it played back to yourself like what are you what have you gotten yourself into um well let's let's uh let's go back to the beginning of the carton Mm -hmm. um how did it get started why felt like maybe perhaps another romantic moment in your life. Um, so I come from a journalism slash food background. I've worked in both industries. Um, and then in 2010, I left a publishing job um, and kind of went on a soul-searching trip in the U.S. Uh, 
typical, you know, wondering what do I want to do next. And I knew that I wanted to write about not part, Lebanon in particular, but the Middle East. Um, and so why why have a soul searching trip in the U.S.? Did you find any soul? Was it? Um, it was it was just like I happened had booked the trip and I left my job and it just coincided. And it was like basically working super hardcore and then just going on a trip with no purpose, no um, financial worries and just like a month traveling around. Um, I came back to Lebanon after that and I sat with a good friend of mine um, at the time and I told her I would like to publish a print publication that talks about the Middle East using food as a vehicle to tell stories that are kind of on the serious side. So she's like, you know, I don't know what you're talking about, but I kind of like the sound of that. Um, how can I help? Uh, this is Rowan Jabran, who is the creative director of the carton. Um, and so I had $5,000 in the bank. And um, I'm like, you know, what the hell? Let me like just investigate the process. How do you do it? Like just the legal stuff and setting up the company and and it's actually more difficult in Lebanon than it is, I don't know, probably in the U.S., but I'm familiar with the U.K. and, and Europe. Um, I mean, you can publish anything. You can go to a printing press in Berlin, let's say, um, and just hand them a file, and they'll print it for you. It doesn't work that way in Lebanon. You have to have a very specific permit to be able to go to any printing press, show them this permit to be able to publish literally anything. Um, so we had to go through that whole debacle and um, eventually we managed to do so and published our first edition with contributors only. So I contacted different people I had worked with in the publishing industry and food and they got really excited. They're like, oh, we're happy you're like kind of back in the game. Um, yeah, sure, you know, we'll take photos for you, we'll illustrate, we'll write. And so it literally started that way. And by the second and third edition, people started to see the, the product and they were excited because they felt it was really honest, you know, uh, writers that usually get commissioned to do something in a very specific way. were like, whoa, we have creative freedom. We can do whatever the hell we want as long as we stick to obviously a few guidelines. And it snowballed from there. And at a given time, so at a given edition we'd have two three um waiting lists of contributors willing to contribute for free uh to this publication just for the joie de <laughs> joie de create i guess yeah i guess i mean i mean did food media exist in in lebanon uh in a very specific way before then or what did it look like not really. It was just like really cheesy cookbooks. Um, and, you know, I always used to say Lebanon or the Middle East kind of always lags uh, behind, let's say, the West uh, in different industries. At a time, it was like an eight-year lag before, I mean, before social media exploded. But with uh, independent publishing, slow journalism particularly, it was actually not so far behind. Um, I remember at the time... Um, I was working on the first edition of the carton and one of my writing mentors, he's a British journalist, his name is uh, James Montague. Uh, he had published a book about uh, soccer and the Middle East and he won this like um, best new author award in the UK. 
Um, he contacted me. He told me he, he was passing through Beirut for a night. Sorry, I know it's like uh, short notice. If you're around, let's grab a drink. So I told him, yeah, you know, I'm actually working on something. I'd love to run by you. And I showed it to him and he was like, whoa, how do you guys know about slow journalism? Um, I'm working with these guys on a publication. We've launched a few issues and it's actually delayed gratification that publishes out of the UK. And he was just like, damn, you should definitely do it. I cannot believe I didn't think of this before you did. And for me, I mean, like, I really respect this guy and he taught me a lot um, in the writing area. And so I was like, yeah, you know, we're trying our best to do it. And now it's like seven years later, we've published 16 editions. Um, yeah, and that's it. that's it in a nutshell, I would say. What is the carton referred to? What is the name? Um, so at the time, it was me, it was me and three uh, ladies that were working with me. And we kind of wanted like to autonomously like think of names and just kind of vote. We didn't want to, we didn't want to stress too much of, about the first edition because we knew if we obsessed too much, it was never going to come out. So we said, okay, we want something that one works in the three different languages in Lebanon. That so French, English, and Arabic sounds kind of similar in those languages. Something that is that refers to food, but is not food in a direct way, and that is kind of tactile. Something that you that is more like you touch, you like you know handle uh, rather than you consume, and uh, something that is. Essentially, like, it's part of your life, but it's it's not there to pretend to be anything. And so we all voted for, they were like, there was a list. And then we all voted for the carton because the carton is like the carton of milk, the carton of eggs. Um, it's paper. It's something that is in your life, but you don't pay too much attention to. And carton in all these different languages sounds kind of the same. And we didn't give it much attention and it just like went on from there. Tell me the most carton, carton story that you've ever published. So the story, um, one of the stories that always comes to mind is uh, the story of a journalist who got arrested uh, for shoplifting in Beirut. She was just at a supermarket. She kind of just pocketed a lipstick and got immediately arrested and thrown into a jail with all sorts of people from domestic workers that were accused of doing something they ha hadn't done to like proper criminals. Um, and she was there for weeks with no court date, no phone calls or lawyers or anything. No way to bail out. Absolutely not, because people didn't even know. I mean, she was married at the time. Her husband didn't even know where she was, like where they actually uh, had locked her up. And the only way she would keep track of anything, like the days and the hours passing, was through this notebook she had. She just kept a food journal of when people walked in, like tea time, that sort of thing. Um, and when she came out, we had a chat, and then we decided to publish this, um, this journal uh, like in a visual way, but then also she talked a bit about her experience. And... Clearly, it's not about the food journal or the food. It's, I mean, we have a very um, unjust uh, judicial system in Lebanon um, where things like that can easily happen. And people can go, like, 
can be locked up for six years with no court date. They could be people that are foreigners and people, their families back home don't know anything about where they are, why they haven't heard from them. So it was kind of like to tackle this whole, you know, situation. Jesus. So you, you leave for milk in the morning, you get a little light fingered and suddenly nobody knows where you are for weeks and weeks on end. Yeah. Um, well, that's good to know. I'll keep my hands in my pocket next <laughs> time I'm shopping here in Beirut. No lipsticks um, for you. But it's an incredible, you know, that mentality about this is a food story is quite interesting. And as you were uh, putting in the context of James Montague, it's, it's quite ahead of your time. Like you, it's not a retrograde feeling about the way to use food as a way to talk about society, right? That's a, it, it feels very much on the, on the cutting edge of what international media is trying to do. Um, but you've also worked in high cuisine and like sort of straight up fine dining. What, how did you get into that? And, and what was your, what was your experience there? So I worked in a food concept building for a while and then uh, moved around in publishing. One of the publishing houses I worked for uh, owned the timeout in the, in the country. And um, I was food editor and senior editor, kind of worked my way up the ladder. What is food concept building? So it's basically working in a company that designs restaurants um, from A to Z. Um, and then, I mean... I was, food was kind of always something that I worked in. Even when I was in college, I was a mystery shopper just to kind of like get free meals in nice restaurants. And you would just tell stories about what they'd done and how the service was. Yeah, and yeah, 100%. That's so. an excellent college job. That, <laughs> right? that and then hanging out uh, at the bar. <laughs> So it's like a good college existence. Yeah, so basically um, after that... Um, the thing that kind of opened up the world of fine dining to me was uh, getting involved in the world's 50 best restaurants uh, awards. So um, seven years ago, I got a phone call from the academy telling me that a few people had mentioned my name after um, the old uh, chairperson of the Middle East stepping down because he had moved the moved from the region. Um, and then it sort of, you know, went on from there. I was appointed as chairperson of the Middle East in the academy. And I think it's just like that this world kind of gets you to meet different, really interesting people in the food world. And um, you start to see it in a different way. I mean, I was never into, you know, critiquing restaurants or I always feel like food is, should be a constructive thing. Um, and for me, it's more more about like the the culture and the sociopolitics behind a restaurant or a project. Um, but the the plus side of being in something like this is that you meet really interesting people that are doing great things for the industry and for the world and for food in general. What does it mean to cover or be the chairperson of the Middle East for the world's fifty best? I mean, if you're lucky, you get a couple restaurants on that top 50 list, right? I mean, it's not a, um, they're notorious for, you know, having somewhat unequal distribution across the globe. Does that make you a, a fighter for this region? Does it make you, uh, have, have to explain, you know, why certain restaurants should get inclusion and how do you deal with a region that is also importing so many of these big brands, restaurateur brands to the Gulf, basically, 
which is very different from your Middle East. Like, how does that all work? So, like, I try not to look at it as, like, trying to push the region that I represent so much um, as just, you know, like, trying to use food as a way to, uh, like, push for social change, essentially. Um, that's a personal, that's a personal agenda. Um, the thing is, the Middle East, I don't need to explain why it's, it's really behind on, you know, making it to topless uh, when it comes to things like fine dining, because, I mean, part of the region is, you know, like suffers on um, growing produce that matches uh, like high grade restaurants, which mostly is in the Gulf. And then countries like in the Levant, like in Lebanon, you know, are going through political turmoil nonstop that, you know, maybe this is not the highest priority. The economy is never stable. Um, but I think it's just, you know, getting a voice from the region because part of what a chairperson does is to put together a panel. You know, it's you're hired to have the knowledge to be able to put, up, put together a panel that rotates every year, um, split into restaurateurs, uh, food critics, journalists, broadcasters, and just simple gastronomes that like travel the world to eat, uh, that have the knowledge and out of experience, they kind of understand food. Um, and then just having these people from the region have a voice and kind of be part, part of that pile of, um, of voters from around the world. Eventually, of course, I'd love for a restaurant to make it to the list if it deserves to. Uh, it's still kind of behind, I would say, if I had to, if I had to, you know, assess that. But that's, I don't think that's a problem. Like right now, it's not the biggest problem the region's <laughs> facing. <laughs> yes, chief among problems the Middle East is facing. It's probably not their lack of inclusion, you know, in the world's 50 best. But so it's interesting, though. You're you're not saying that there needs to, you know, evolve a 50 best member you really just want to have Arab and Middle Eastern voices in the selection of the 50 best wherever they reside. Yeah. And it's I, somewhere else. And I mean, like, uh, you'll be surprised as to how many people from this region are actually extremely well-traveled, extremely developed on the palate area. It's, and I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm less surprised because it's, it's all you do. I mean, you know, the Lebanese are famously everywhere on earth, you know, except perhaps for Lebanon, right? I mean, there's like this huge, uh, the Lebanese have always been going outward and kind of creating uh, stardom wherever they go. So it's trying to harness some of that, of just like how, how people from the Middle East are traveling and eating and, and knowledgeable in those things and making sure that they have a voice in, mm -hmm. uh, at the table. And the more they're exposed to things like this, the more they get excited about, you know, how am I going to get it on this list? Uh, you know, what, how, where do I need to up my game? And it's just, I mean, it's a, it's a competition in a sense, you know, but the idea is like to look beyond that. I think it's like, it's when you look at it from like, from a surface uh, perspective, I don't think you capture the whole of it. I mean, it's like everything. I think what makes it are the people involved and then you get to meet and interact and collaborate with people along the way that are just really incredible human beings. Um, and I think this is what, make, make, what makes it.
How do you guys deal with uh, Israel in the context of 50 best Middle East? Um, so that, uh, that used to be considered part of the region. But then um, for the last few years, I had been discussing the fact that, you know, uh, people from the rest of the Middle East um, and from Israel, like they're kind of banned from visiting each other's right. countries. You so can't travel there. They can't travel. hundred percent. I mean, I, I as a chairperson can't even visit the country and people from there can't visit the countries in the rest of the Middle East and the people, the voters from the Middle East, uh, this says, I mean, this side of the Middle East cannot visit there. And so for the last few years, I tried to tackle this point. I mean, just to be representative, really. Um, and then recently, uh, the verdict was um, uh, to, to join Israel with the Balkans and Turkey region because there, there aren't bans on traveling there. And the chairperson of that region was kind enough to, you know, accept and think accept Israelis as as part of that region. <laughs> no, I mean to accept to join. I mean to add one more uh, yeah. uh, country to her region. And I mean because it it makes sense. I mean I mean it doesn't. It it's not like the way you divide the the the, the world into regions is. I mean it's like creating borders, right? Like, what is the logic behind it? You know, you need to create a set of rules. Sometimes they don't make any sense, but do borders, really? That is true. Although there is a combined palette, there's kind of a, you know, there there could be a shared vocabulary between Israel and the rest of the Middle East. It's, it's obviously insane. Like, are you going to do Google Hangouts with Israelis and never actually meet in person <laughs> and show them the piece of food? And, you know, like... How are you going to actually experience something on a sensory level without having the uh, the freedom to travel on either side? Yeah, uh, that's crazy. All right, so you uh, you had spent part of your childhood in the Gulf. What was it like for you as as a Lebanese child, as a child of this city, to go to the Gulf and uh, and go to high school and and be a teenager out there? Huh. Um, so it was like, and this is the '90s, right? So it was. A pretty close community. Abu Dhabi did not look like Abu Dhabi today. Um, I mean, I literally spent my childhood cycling around to go to my friends' houses. You would not even imagine wow. that, but it's, it's like true. a suburban experience in what is now the you know the glitzy metropolis of the desert. Yeah, and I mean, I had friends from all over North Africa, the U.S., all over Europe, um, Southeast Asia, like. I had friends from all over, so I think it kind of helped shape how I view people in the world. And and then I think food, I mean, my, my, my interest in food kind of developed then. I hadn't realized it until people started asking me, like, what is it with you and food, really, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> really, stop giving us the fake story. Tell me about the real story. Yeah, my mom was a terrible cook, and uh, I realized that that, that actually helped I mean, it, it kind of accelerated my desire to have good food. I remember like every time I got, ex I got invited to a birthday party, I was really mostly excited about the food that was going to be there than like the, like the whatever movable chairs or the whatever you call it, musical chairs. The, the musical, so you were basically like somebody besides my mom is going to be cooking a meal. Yeah. I'm so fired up. Is that like, do you lose a lot of face as a, as a Middle Eastern woman if you're just a shit cook? Or can you take some pride in just being like, listen, I've got other interests outside. Oh yeah, kitchen. my mom still tries to cook for us till this day. And we're like, mom, you really don't need to cook great food. I mean, you're a terrible cook. I mean... Um, Let's and order. 
why not just <laughs> or, I'll, or I'll just cook for you, you know, for a change. Yeah, and I mean, I think also uh, growing up with different friends from different nationalities means that we got to eat really diverse food over and over again. So first time we'd eat it, we wouldn't enjoy it. And then it's like anything that's acquired. And so, you know, here we are now like eating Iranian food and Indian food and I don't know, Nigerian food. And, you know, feeling like it's comfort food, although it's not really our food, you know. But that's the food of your childhood is this kind of Epcot Center in the Gulf <laughs> where you're just kind of experiencing a bunch of different bites somehow. Yeah. Where did you learn how to cook? Just from experience. I mean, I think um, eating around a lot um, kind of explains to you what your expression of food and cooking is. I, I would say I, I, I like good ingredients. It's a very cheesy to say, and I think any chef or anyone that cooks will tell you, yeah, like, sure, if you get good carrots, you're going to make something good. But um, I like this, like, purist approach to cooking when it comes to me, not when it comes to what I want to eat. I mean, of course, I'd like to eat that, but I, I, like, I like my senses to be challenged at this point. Um, equally as much as I would like, I mean... You know, typically with someone that works with food, people are like, oh, I'm sorry when they invite you over. Like, I'm just cooking a humble mean meal. And I'm like, what? That's, that's exactly what I want. A humble meal. That's exactly what I want. So I can enjoy a manouche. I don't know if you had a manouche yet. I haven't. It's a uh, humble meal. I mean, it's like, like, a pr- like the, you know, the flatbread kind of like, a, like the Lebanese pizza, as cheesy as that sounds, like with the za'atar on top, and it's just like a dough and like a, like a kind of like a pizza oven, um, and it's baked, and it's consumed as a breakfast here. So if you make me an, a kick-ass manouche, I'll enjoy it just as much as eating at, I don't know, 11 Madison Park. Or, right. It's a lot. Of, you, you bring a lot of heat, though, as a dinner guest. People are like, oh, shit, she's on, she chairs the board for World's 50 Best, and i got to cook this woman some food. Yeah, but, I mean, what is good food, right? It's, it's, um, it's just like a feel-good thing, right? It can, be, it can be anything. Like, you can get me um, um, like a really amazingly, amazingly grown like celery and just like salt it and we just grill it and eat it. It's not black and white, right? Right. And it does have so much to do with like the context of people who are serving you, how much they, this is the thing about Ferdinand. It's a great bar. Obviously, they're serving delicious things, but they're doing it honestly and earnestly. And they, uh, they were bound for hospitality, clearly. <laughs> so if Riyadh and Sako are treating you well, you're going to, it's like a 5X factor on whatever they serve you. Yeah. So that's, that's you as a dinner guest. Just don't be a dick about it. <laughs> be somebody who I enjoy, you know, being served by and eating with, and and then suddenly it's a it's an elevated experience. Yeah, like be honest about it. Like if I go to someone's home and they're like, "Sorry, you know, I've got this thing that I cooked three days ago. I'm just gonna pop it like in the oven and heat it." Um, for me, like that's just honest, you know. So, how do you think about media and publishing in that in that context now? Because we you know, are in a time of crisis and I was talking with someone else who had wanted to start an independent media company and was not able to access their own money from their bank because there's such a hold on funds. And he's like, I guess I have to wait, you know, to which I say there's plenty of time to lose your money in media. Like, 
<laughs> you could start next year and lose all your money very quickly. Like you don't have to uh, wait too long to uh, to experience the joy of losing money on independent media. But why? I mean, for you, why why do media and and why stick with it through all of these crises? Um, I don't know. Maybe it's just like um, it's like this freedom to include as many voices that are unheard as possible, um, and and this like creative freedom for me is always really exciting. Um, you know, like we've worked with, I don't know, photographers that have worked for the New York Times that, are, that come to us and they're like, okay, what are you working on? Let's do it. You know, we're doing it. We're doing it for free. We don't care. And, you know, putting, them in, putting their work in the portfolio just as they do for like any huge publication. For them, it's just like remembering the fact that they worked through this process the way they wanted to work through this process, the way they believed they, they should. And, you know, to be proud with this piece of work that, you know, like that feeling when that publication comes out of the printers and you're like, whoa, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it, it's this feeling that no matter what happens before, the second you get it in your hands, you're like, yeah, this is what I, why I do it, you know? And it's, it's problematic because it costs you a lot of money. It does cost a lot of money. You have to print it. You got to pay up front. Mm -hmm. You have to get the license to be able to print things on paper in Lebanon. Yeah, and Lebanon is very tricky in every single industry almost because we have such a small population. Uh, it's like uh, this big heart uh, community with very small population. So unless you end up exporting most of what you do, it will not make financial sense. And export is a very political thing. So unless you have um, facilities to help you export and different, you know, like... Um, uh, treaties with different countries and nations and that are willing to import your products whatever the product is it's very difficult and so the second and they don't even facilitate even if you kind of find um, channels the cost of exporting is so high that you know you really need to get on your excel sheets and try to make sense of it and it often doesn't doesn't make any sense so you're talking about printing physically here, sending it out, because it's an English language publication, which theoretically can and is sold around the world, but just getting it out in numbers enough outside of Lebanon that would be meaningful to you is, is essentially impossible. Yeah. Yeah. Five million people in Lebanon? Yeah, that's what they say. I mean, it goes up and down, depends on how, how many of the refugees are included in, the, in this count. Right. Uh, it's it's a very small market size mm -hmm. for the work that you're trying to do. And not all of them are English speakers. And we've been asked whether it would make sense for us to publish in Arabic. But at the same time, we're trying to talk about the region. We're trying to talk about the region to the biggest audience that we can talk to. And I think, I mean, English made sense, not because not only because we're like comfortable and fluent with English, but we felt we can get to wider territories. And I mean, naturally, our biggest audiences are in the US or Australia, the UK, and in Europe. Um, and then, you know, diaspora around. It really is difficult to make fina financial sense out of it. I mean, we still think we had big wins. Uh, I still believe the carton's been a success, even if it's not like a huge financial success, you know. 
what is your dream? What's your goal for the carton? Like, what would you like to see it become if we um, lived in the world that we all deserve? So I'm, I'm, I think personally speaking, I'm very passionate about exploring platforms, like working. Um, so essentially the carton is as a medium to, to explore an alternative narrative around the region. Um, we use food as a vehicle, different publications and, and different entities use different ways to talk about the region. This, I guess, is like our language. Food is our language. For me, I would really like to explore different mediums in bringing this narrative to life and having people experience them that way. But I would like to continue publishing in print. Like my hardcore passion, I think, is just to, you know, like I could publish an issue every month if it makes financial sense. Uh, it remains my utmost desire. Yeah. Well, if people tell you to go digital, you can tell them to fuck right off. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. I don't, yeah. I don't know the advertising market for you know, digital English language content uh, in the Middle East, but it's, it's not great you know, in, the, in the States. Yeah, but I mean, um, it would not be focused. I mean, the, the idea of going global, uh, sorry, going digital is to go global, right? It's just like this, like no boundaries uh, we we uh, have on a very low fire the idea of launching a digital membership. How that would come about, we're not 100% convinced. We still debate. I mean, let's see. Let's see what happens. But I feel like um, it's just like globalization, I keep saying, especially at these tough times that we're going through. I feel like the whole world, not just Lebanon, is in this a state of figuring out a post-globalization uh, way of existing. Uh, it's like there'll be this thing that comes after globalization, you know, that doesn't eliminate it completely, but kind of eliminates all these heavy downsides of it. Um, I think people want to disconnect more still. I mean, obviously in 2010, 11, when we were talking about the carton, that was one of the things we had on the table. Like people want to read, they want to disconnect, they want to touch paper you know like flip like flick through pages but I think still seven years down the line I think even more so people just want um, something that is just theirs where they can happily put their phones down in a, in a way I feel like we can't make a decision until we see what this post-globalization world will look like if there's one other place in Beirut that people now speaking in your role as as uh, esteemed chairwoman of the Middle East region, someone who Ooh knows, la la. yes, <laughs> who knows of the finer things of life. One um, place in Beirut people should go. So um, uh, Calais is. A, I'm very biased to Calais. I mean, I'm involved with the business, and I also uh, like kind of like in a sister business of the carton shops actually exist on the premises of the two Calais that exist in the city. So it's easy for me to love it and say good things about it. But really, very fairly, I would say, for a coffee roastery, uh, like a specialty coffee roastery in Beirut, it is surprisingly shocking how good the cocktails and the drinks in general are. I mean, Dahlia really gets out of her way to put some of the best local wines on the menu and, you know, to... To just like use local products to explore, uh, you know, what a, a standard coffee shop uh, offering is as much as she can. So I'm, you know, if 
like I said, I'm not a cocktail drinker, but if I am going to go out for cocktails, it better be a great experience. And I think Calais uh, ticks these, these boxes. I think two of the drinks that come to mind are one that is mezcal-based, not local at all, but it's called Izzy Smoky Legs. Um, and I really, really like that drink uh, at Calais. And then a walk in Damour, which is made of the, the carton. Uh, Ara. Yeah. Um, and that, that one's got a great story because uh, Ara is something that you have been drinking as an underaged individual here. And it's this, uh, this process of trying to mask your breath after a long night out as a teenager. So how, how does this cocktail kind of speak to that uh, delightful memory that, of your of your youth so it's it's twofold so when i was a kid and I, we were living abroad every summer we came here my brother and i uh we got sick because obviously the water changed the environment changed so the second we landed here we used to get sick and then one summer a distant uncle suggested that we drank had a sec just a shot we were like five or six or seven years old and he promised this will be the cure and it actually worked for the first time, like we, every time we landed in Beirut, they gave us this shot of Ara as children. And then it became this like incredible cure for me. So obviously... So you guys had diarrhea coming back from the Gulf <laughs> and they were just like feeding you shots of hard alcohol. So the second we had that shot, it just, we never got sick again. I'm not even exaggerating. And so the idea of the the, the walk in the moor, so Calais has a, a Arab-based cocktail. And then one day we sat down, we were discussing like what could be like a good cocktail with Arab, especially for people that don't like it because... I noticed that people don't, that don't like Hara generally don't like licorice because it has this licorice. Uh, right, it's an anise-based, yeah. Yeah, so... Like so, licorice or ouzo or rocky, right? Yeah, so, so how can you get some people that generally don't like that kind of flavor to, you know, just digest it, you know, in a way? And I remember that when I was a kid and we were, like, like you said, we were underage and we go out drinking... And we came back home and we didn't want our parents to know that we, we'd been out drinking. The, we would pass by this vegetable store that opened late and pick up cucumbers and just eat them before we got home. And the, because cucumbers are so fragrant, uh, they mask the smell of alcohol. I'm so fascinated by this because I've never heard that before, that somehow, you know, so many weird things that people would do to, to mask the smell of alcohol on the breath, but just like pounding cucumbers. Trial seems... and error, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> First, it started with lettuce, and then we went to beetroot. Yeah, uh, so basically, uh, the, the, the drink is great. It has... Um, it has cucumber, but I mean, the idea is not just to mask the ara. It, it, it really is like a combination of bitters that pops up the, all the different layers of flavor in the ara and the cartonara. So, yeah, I think this is what we'll be having tonight. It's just a little bit of that, like that hit of fragrance to take it down. So if you're not a licorice lover, but, you know, you can still get into this cocktail. So that's a promise. That's two cocktails that are... Uh, as, as you put it, are directly downstairs from where you live. Yeah. So uh, you have lots of reasons to root for this place. So let's turn off these fucking mics and go have a couple cocktails. Let's do it. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Jade. Thank you, Nathan. The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Alexa Van Sickle is our producer. 
Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Sound mastering and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. An update on Jade. She had to leave that beautiful townhouse where we recorded this episode, where she hosted us during our time in Beirut. It was all just a dream, I guess. And she has been using one of the two Carton locations to host pop-ups for shops and other creatives who were impacted by the port blast. So the Carton lives, but the focus for now is on solidarity and community, and that is a beautiful, if a bittersweet thing. Next week, it is journalist and columnist Gilles Coury, who takes us inside the heart of the revolution, the battle-worn concrete theater called The Egg. We will meet you there.